Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 414. And then there's these other guys, right? That one out of 10. And I noticed that one out of 10, it's the same one out of 10 most of the time. And it's these students of the business. It's, you know, at the time they've done some crazy statistic after I just got done reading on the brink that like out of like the top 200 restaurants that existed, um, like it was over 25 of the CEOs had, had worked for Norman Brinker. They'd all become like, um, uh, had all been mentored by this incredible kind of uh, restaurant guru. And if you start looking around the industry, you'll see that, um, that some of the top executives, they, they all have this, um, this great resume of working for the greats. So I said to myself, as kind of a nerdy guy, you know, very uh, much wanting to get in the restaurant business. God, if I seek out the mentorship of these um, really smart one out of 10 people, um, I can be one of those one out of 10 people, you know, and, and it's not that they always get it right, but they always tend to figure out how to pivot and adjust and evolve, you know, their brands. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable, and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's cabbage with a K. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. Who loves doing paperwork? No one. Sorcery is an efficient online AP automated solution for the food service industry and restaurants, large and small, are using Sorcery to provide a scalable solution to help them create efficiencies and ultimately grow their business while impacting their bottom line. To learn more, head to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com. And be sure to mention Restaurant Unstoppable to get your first month free. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Mario Del Perro. Mario, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Uh, Eric, you know, when you say it like that, I, I, I start to kind of feel a little unstoppable, but uh, uh, mostly uh, just always, you know, pretty excited. Uh, we're doing a lot of really interesting, unique things that um, inspire me and uh, get me to jump out of bed in the morning. And, um, you know, I, I, I was already kind of, uh, you know, pondering on your name, unstoppable. <laughs> and, uh, I think that... Uh, I think it's definitely dripping with some irony in the fact that uh, that in the restaurant business, there's just so many uh, ways to be stopped. But uh, you got to keep going. <laughs> so many potholes. There's so many hills to climb. Um, there's so many um, things that can kind of take you out of the game that uh, uh, that, that definitely that's a that's a very bold, powerful word <laughs> that uh, you know that, that definitely gets you a little bit excited and. Uh, 
Yeah. So to, to your point, yes, I feel <laughs> unstoppable, probably only because I'm doing this podcast. Awesome. With you. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, I'm happy I can help you feel unstoppable today, Mario. And before we introduce you even further, I got to say a special shout out to uh, Chris Dimmick for making this happen. He wrote me saying, you got to get Mario on the show. So here you are. I do listen to your emails, guys. I do take requests. So if there's somebody that you admire in this industry and you want them on the show, please let me know. Uh, Mario Del Perro grew up in his family's meat processing business. He would go on to study international relations at the University of Southern California and was on the path to become a lawyer. Instead, he took a job at a Mexican grill where he started as a bar back and eventually became the director of operations. In 2005, Mario, along with his wife, Ellen Chen, uh, opened Mendocino Farm Sandwich Market in Southern California. 12 years later, they have 17 locations. I can't wait to find out how you did it. Uh, but before we dive into your story, let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we have actually, and this is for, uh, all of our team. And it's one that I've, uh, lived by, uh, all my life. And that's, uh, get better every day. Mm. And we call it G bed. So every one of our managers, um, in their, in their pre-shift huddle, um, talks about the things that that uh, that we're going to work on from from the day before, and I think a lot of people lose sight of if you're if you're not improving every day, um, you're not actually staying the same because mm-hmm. the world's dynamic. You're getting worse. So um, as restaurants, if you think that you're going to keep your menu the same, if you think you're going to keep your experience the same, um, if you think you're going to come in and, and operate, um, you know, the same day that you operated yesterday. Um, you're gonna you're gonna lose because everyone else is getting better around you. So uh, my my mantra that I live by is get better every day. I love it, and it's so true. Uh, I've had people on the show who have admitted that their that their biggest failures was when they reached the top. They thought they were there and they were done, and they took their their foot off the gas. And before you know it, their competitors, their local people, everyone around them was surpassing them because they set the standard and everyone else brought it to the next level because they never uh, continued to grow. So it's so powerful that. Thank you so much for going there. And um, where did it all start for you? Like, when did you know that you were going to make a, a commitment in your life to this industry? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so I, you know, I was in college and definitely uh, I, I think I was a really fun guy to go out and, uh, and party with, but I was definitely um, a nerdy enough guy that if you could see my paper during a test, you might want to copy. Um, so <laughs> I, I definitely, you know, had the studious side and was really um, kind of on the trajectory to go to law school. Um, yet at the same time, uh, I had a buddy who opened up a uh, restaurant bar and uh, he did it with his dad. Um, my buddy was Greg Newman. Uh, who created the Sharkies uh, bars. So not the Sharkies burrito, taco, fast casual places, but the Sharkies bars that are around Manhattan, Hermosa Beach, Santa Barbara, um, Huntington Beach, um, Newport Beach, all around like kind of these um, coastal cities in SoCal. Uh, But he he was opening his first one. And I went with his dad, who actually had created the Red Onion restaurants, uh, Ron Newman and just a really um, kind of a restaurant bar savant. And, and I was fascinated on their kind of creation tour that they did in, in conceptualizing what concept they were going to do as great graduated college at USC. 
And it went way deeper than I had ever expected. You know, I, you know, my version of what I thought restaurant people did was, Hey, look, um, I've got kind of a good idea. Um, let's, you know, put a name and a brand around it and get it out there. And yet when they were conceptualizing, uh, what, what ended up being Sharkies, uh, they really started with, you know, who's our core customer and what do they need? Um, and then from that standpoint, they designed the building around that core customer, the food offering around that core customer, the pricing around that core customer, uh, all the promotions were around that core customer um, to completely own that demographic. And I watched them then launch this concept that's so deeply connected and filled need. Um, and for me, it was, it was like, wow, I'm going into a business law that's zero sum. I win, you lose, right? Mm-hmm. And here I watch them in a business where not only is it um, I make you happy, right? And you come back more often and we make more money. But even better, if you're beside me, you're a competitor, you're another bar. They opened right beside this other bar. They made that other bar more money because yeah. <laughs> all ships tend yep. to rise with high tides. Awesome. So not only is it not zero sum, Right. But they're actually they're they're making money from making people happy. And actually, they have this kind of ripple effect around other businesses around them. I thought, God, what, you know, this is something I could get pretty excited about. Awesome. Um, Now, now, granted, you know, I I did have to weigh in the fact that my dad, um, you know, running a meat corporation and dealing with restaurants you know, was always shoving in my face, you know, Mario, you know, the statistic where I don't know where it came from, whether it's accurate or not, but nine out of 10 restaurants fail, right? You mean hear it all the time. It was like, Mario, nine out of 10 restaurants fail. Like, why would you ever go into a business where nine out of 10 restaurants fail? So I had that kind of weighing on me. Um, so, so to kind of fast forward, um, the nerdy side of me said, Hey, look, if I'm going to like pursue the restaurant space, um, I, I should do some research, except for this is back in 1992. And let me tell you, Google was not around. You Before podcast too. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I had to do what everyone would do. And that's actually go to a real bookstore, right? Go to a real library and pull up whatever books I could find in the restaurant space. And one of them that I found, um, and it was called On the Brink. It was about Norman Brinker. He's a, a fascinating uh, guy. Obviously, a lot of people credit him with creating chilies. He actually bought chilies um, in its early innings and then grew it to be, um, you know, one of the larger casual dining restaurant groups to ever exist. Um, but he was he was a fascinating guy. Um, he was like, I believe, you know, don't misquote me, but like student body president of San Diego State. Um, you know, he was helping uh, supplement um, his time. Um, while he was in college at a burger stand, when he graduated, he definitely said to the guy that owned the, the, the couple burger stands, Hey, I think I could help you. The name of that burger stand was uh, Jack in the box. Um, he went on to grow that. He went on to become one of the youngest CEOs, um, in fortune, uh, 100, like restaurant history with running Burger King when he was in his like thirties. Um, went on and, uh, and then created uh, uh, Brinker um, with, with that Burger King money. Um, so just an incredible human being, an unbelievably 
thoughtful um, student of the business. And a light bulb went off um, to me. And I started thinking about the, my dad shoving in my face, nine out of 10 restaurants fail. <laughs> and I said, you know what? His stat might be right. And I'm going to go with four to five out of re- four out of five restaurants are mom and pops that, um, that might just be buying themselves a job. And when I mean by buying themselves a job, and I have mad respect for a lot of mom and pops that kick butt and are phenomenal, but I'm saying like, Hey, someone has like a good recipe for whatever, and I'm unemployed, which typically means that other people don't want to employ you, right? And let's go ahead because the barrier of entry and open up this restaurant when, in fact, we should never own any business, but the barrier of entry is so low, we can own this one, yeah. right? Or find themselves a job. So maybe that's four out of five restaurants, right? that fail should, should never have been open. Yeah. They, they just grossly underestimate what it goes, what, what, what it takes to be successful and just even to keep your doors open and be comfortable. Uh, there's so many variables involved that people well, just don't the whole consider. business side of it, right. Yeah. Actually being able to understand, you know, how much square footage and uh, what your occupancy costs are and all the, the business side, right. Um, it's not just, you know, a good recipe and taking care of people, um, which, which is core though. Um, and then, and then I look at like, so, so then there's the other like kind of two or three restaurants that tend to always fail. And oftentimes those are smart people, um, that are, that have made their money in other businesses. So mm-hmm. whether they were lawyers or doctors or done real estate, right. Um, and, and decide not to use their intellect and actually be students of the business, Right. And they go in and they try to hire everything outside. They try to hire the chef. They try to hire the ops person. They try to hire the team, right? But they truly aren't actual students of the business. Don't, and, and some of them have like mild success, maybe one restaurant, two restaurants work, but they're never able to scale because they're not willing to understand the infrastructure, right? And the systems that it takes, uh, that it takes to actually create a consistent experience um, and continue to actually build on that experience, right? Get better every day. Mm, Um, And so they, they either have mild success um, and typically think that they, that this is the easiest business in the world because on the outset, it looks very simple, but truly never become students of the business. And then there's these other guys, right? That one out of 10. And I noticed that one out of 10, it's the same one out of 10 most of the time. And it's these students of the business. It's, you know, at the time they've done some crazy statistic after I just got done reading on the brink that like out of like the top 200 restaurants that existed, um, like it was over 25 of the CEOs had, had worked for Norman Brinker. They'd all become like, um, uh, had all been mentored by this incredible kind of uh, restaurant guru. And if you start looking around the industry, you'll see that, um, that some of the top executives, they, they all have this, um, this great resume of working for the greats. So I said to myself as kind of a nerdy guy, you know, very uh, much wanting to get in the restaurant business. God, if I seek out the mentorship of these um, really smart one out of 10 people, um, I can be one of those one out of 10 people, you know, and, and it's not that they always get it right, but they always tend to figure out how to pivot and adjust and evolve, you know, their brands. 
Um, and that's, that was a very long answer to a very short <laughs> No, question. man, it was awesome. I was taking notes as you're going to, and you touched on right. some huge lessons uh, that we've come across uh, over these 400 plus episodes. And that's just that whole idea of, uh, you know, creating those win-win situations and starting with the end in mind, like you mentioned very early on saying like with the, at Sharkies that they started with, you know, what do the customers want? What do they need starting there and then working backwards, uh, creating those win-win situations where it's not just about you winning, but like, how do you find situations where everybody uh, wins. I've, I've found that people who think like that are much more successful. And that big one, that last one you, you shared with us is just surrounding yourself with people who are great. And if you, you are the average of those you surround yourself with, and if you want to learn how to be great, go, go surround yourself with those great people. They'll teach you those lessons. Yeah. Go, go work for uh, the greats, no matter what they pay you. Yep. Um, it will pay off. Oh yeah. Don't, don't take a job for the money. Take a job for what you're going to learn. Absolutely. Uh, great stuff so far, man. Uh, so, you're at Sharkies. You start as a bar back. You're, you're learning the business. You eventually become the DO. Uh, what was it about you that made you, cause you graduated in 95 and you broke out in 98 to do your own business. Correct. So that's just three yeah. years you, you made that climb. So what was it that yeah. was so special about you that these opportunities came to you real quick? Um, so, so, uh, Greg and Ron Newman, let me be a general manager far earlier than anyone should be allowed to be a general manager. <laughs> I think because, um, we had built up an enormous amount of trust. Um, uh, you know, at, by the time I became general manager, there was an enormous amount of cash, um, flowing through Sharkies. I mean, I think for a 3000 square foot restaurant, they were doing almost, you know, five, 6 million in sales. And this is, you were not seeing the credit cards that you see, you know, probably nowadays. It was, it was an enormous amount of cash. And, um, I think, I think they just, they flat out, um, there was, there was trust there and, and, and they promoted me. I think the other thing that they saw is that, um, it was my approach, you know, for me, uh, while the, while the bar business, cause we did a huge amount of bar business can, um, come off really sexy and fun. Um, I think that they saw that I, I saw it as um, really my career. I wasn't playing in the business. I was, um, you know, I was dedicated to want to learn. I was dedicated to wanting to um, build the team. I was dedicated to wanting to make more money each day. And I think they saw um, that I really took kind of a pragmatic approach and not a um, let's party um, uh, approach to it. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I, I joke around that, you know, that I'm, I'm now like a 45 year old that's going on 60. You know, I think at the time I was probably a 21 year old going on 35 or 40. Right. Um, so I've just been kind of an old soul and, um, and, and they gave me a lot of responsibility. And with that, um, they started opening, uh, restaurants. And, um, at the time our while they did have the old red onion training manuals, or at least the basics uh, of those, um, this was a new concept. This was one of the earliest fast casuals that had ever been created. If you think about it, because we were doing basically, um, a pub concept that you would see in, in, uh, England or Ireland, you know, you order your food and your drinks at the bar. So this is like fast casual early any, right. Um, so th- there wasn't really a playbook. And, um, and that's where the kind of the, the, the nerdier side of me of wanting to create early systems and how do we actually, um, create a consistent experience, right? 
So, um, so there's things that we started developing, like, hey, if we want to greet people at a certain point, um, let's name that area and let's even mark it off, you know, like, like you have to be greeted, you know, at the door. So we end up calling it the happy zone. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, you know, now we have a process. Okay. When you're taking an order, you know, you know, what are, um, while, while there isn't necessarily these fine dining or full service steps of service, it is a point of contact. What is the basics that are expected from the guest? What is the wow? And how can we build on that? So if we can, if we can give you what you expect at this point of contact, then we're doing an okay job, an average job. But if we can add some additional wows and coach that, right, how much more powerful could that be? And I think sometimes as restaurant ownership and management teams, you know, we tell our staff, I mean, and no one goes and uh, meets with their staff and goes, hey, treat the customer like crap. Right? No, it's these raw, raw. Come on, guys. We're going to give great hospitality. Let's go out there and love our guests. Right? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, get a paint that picture. Like that's that's like your your idea could it could be so open for interpretation. And for me, I think a lot of like my early sports kind of kicked in. Um, so I'd have one manager's definition of 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 hospitality was completely different than the prior managers right so when i said when i finally became the guy writing the procedures you know first i said let's have let's have procedures let's have what the basics are but just like like on the football field right this is how you run the pattern but this is this is the greatness this is the additional greatness and we added it and clarified it and codified it so as a coach or as a manager i can see that you're running the pattern correctly but then I also can compliment you if you do that extra credit, the little extra mm-hmm. bit that makes it wow, mm. right? And we codified that. And that really elevated. And we did it for every point of contact that intercepted with the guests. And I think that the Newman saw that, you know, here I am writing not just a training manual, but something that was definitely a little bit more progressive than what had been seen prior. Um, and it was just taking kind of the things that I thought, like, I would like to have. Right. I want to be successful as a team member. Tell me how to be great. Yeah. Right. Tell Dude, me how to be great I love go, this. I love it. this. This is great. You're reminding me so much of a, a past guest, a recent uh, re- repeating guest, Rudy Mick, who's a well-known consultant in the industry. And he says this all the time. You've got to paint that picture of perfection. You need to give people something to aim for and you need to spell it out. And that's our job as managers, directors of operations, owners is to enable, to empower our team with the tools, with the knowledge to do the job right. Uh, it's not common sense. We, we've got to paint that picture of perfection. Uh, and you're saying something very similar to that. And I love it. Um, awesome. So man, there's so much I want to cover. We have only so much time. Uh, let's move forward. So you saved up $80,000 working at Sharky's yeah. uh, and you broke yeah. out and you opened American bento company. Uh, take yeah, us through that. Even like put it in a bank. It was like underneath my sink. <laughs> partying at my house looking for toilet paper would have uh, scored huge. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I, I ended up, I, I really actually um, didn't like, it wasn't nothing against the business. I personally in my twenties um, just, just wasn't as excited um, about making my money from 11 PM to 2 AM um, from just a lifestyle, you know, spot. The other thing with the, um, the restaurant bar business is that all, all of my holidays, 
with my buddies that were lawyers and, and at this point just getting out of law school and guys just getting out of medical school and, and the ones that were, you know, in investment banking. So every time that they were having fun on a weekend, it was my busiest time to work. Yeah. And I really saw that, um, that there was kind of a movement going on in about 96, 97, uh, a couple concepts were popping up. Um, I think there was like maybe five units of Baja fresh had just come up out of the Valley. So I'd driven out to the Valley and seen, um, you know, the early Baja fresh and, I completely resonated with this idea of taking um, a taqueria and kind of cleaning it up and making it um, uh, more approachable, right, uh, with better ingredients. Um, that really uh, resonated with me, right? I mean, at this time, the word fast casual didn't exist. They were just calling it like it's a it's better Mexican, right? <laughs> um, also, you know, at the time, my dad had called me. And it um, said, hey, I, I want you to check out a concept. My buddies at McDonald's are looking at it. Uh, this is maybe 97. Um, and it had me fly out to Denver. And I saw, um, you know, the, I, I couldn't imagine they have a handful of uh, stores called Chipotle. Um, and I went out there. I remember it so well because I called my dad back when I got home. And I said, Dad, I got to tell you, this Baja Fresh is so much better than Chipotle. I can't imagine that McDonald's would ever invest. So. Uh, just side note, I'm not always right about stuff. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so in- interesting, but I was really, really inspired. So at the time I was going to a, a dive little teriyaki stand um, and they were doing really, really clean. In fact, the teriyaki was on the side. It wasn't all over the chicken um, as high sugar it was. So it was really, I was eating brown rice and chicken with some, with some steamed vegetables and I love for, for me in my 20s trying to be healthier, um, this was great, but it was actually from kind of a hole in the wall, mom and pop little teriyaki shop. And I thought, God, what if I, what if I did for that what, um, what a Baja Fresh was doing for the Mexican taqueria? Uh, so I created um, the American Bento Company, which um, after completely failing, um, I turned into skews beyond teriyaki without going too deep. Uh, yeah. What do you think it was about the American bento company that did not work? I mean, you almost went bankrupt. You had to borrow $10,000 from your little sister. If I remember reading yeah. that correctly, Jeez. how the heck do you know all this? Okay. <laughs> it's out there, man. Uh, all right. So wow. what was it exactly that you think uh, you swung and missed on, on that, that opportunity? So, um, so, I mean, I mean, w- without going too deep, uh, the three things that I completely missed, uh, one of which wasn't the food, oddly enough, there was no difference in the food from American Bento Company from, excuse me, on teriyaki. I missed the name, American Bento Company. I actually remember someone coming in and trying to buy a T-shirt because um, <laughs> they thought we were a clothing store. Um, so I completely missed on the name. Um, I, I really missed on the packaging um, and the pricing, right? I really missed on that. Um, and then the last part is I was trying to be healthy, yet I didn't give anyone, I, I didn't own it, right? I didn't completely own trying to be healthy. Um, and so when I when I changed the name, the 10 grand was to change the sign and, you know, um, and get me through a couple weeks. Um, but I actually did, uh, I partnered with a local nutritionist and did a whole nutritional, uh, breakdown. So I repackaged, repriced, and actually did nutritionals. 
uh, and then relaunched it uh, with her sending all of her clients mm. from the high-end gym across the street. And next thing you know, people got it. Mm-hmm. Like they started, you know, the category I was in was no longer teriyaki. The category I was in was, was health and wellness. And it was a big, big fundamental shift. Which is way ahead of the curve uh, because right, I mean, right now or in the past, like I would say, if I say, you know, the past few years is really where like the, the fast casual health and wellness, everyone's yeah. finally caught on. Like that's what's working, but you were doing this 18 years yeah. ago. Um, yeah. so well, a little before my time, which is why yeah, I maybe, do as well. Maybe, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, so <laughs> you eventually, uh, so things worked, you rebranded, uh, what happened exactly with SKUs? You named SKUs, right? That's we're on the same. Yeah. Board. Okay. It's called SKUs beyond teriyaki was the tag. Um, we ended up growing it to three restaurants, um, at that, by the third one, I was start, I, I was actually in middle of the third construction, didn't properly um, uh, budget what the build out cost was going to be. Obviously, um, didn't have the contingency that I would always have now, um, and was short money. Needed an investor. Actually, at that time, it just uh, started dating this girl who had made a great amount of money during the '90s dot com boom. Um, and asked if she wanted to be an investor. And at that point, um, this, this like early endings girlfriend now owned half of Skews Beyond Teriyaki. Um, and I continued to date her and I ended up marrying my business partner. So I kind of always joke with people that I didn't, I didn't try to, you know, ask my wife if she wanted to be in business with me. My, my wife, I married my business partner. My, my, my business partner owned half the company and then <laughs> my wife. So. Well, I'm curious. Let's dive into this topic a little bit more. Uh, one of my past guests, the, the owner of a big red F, his name is escaping me for some reason. Uh, but he said during that interview that you need to treat your business partner as if you would marry them because you are, uh, because you are going to be married to that person in business, uh, spending probably more time with them than your actual significant other. So are you willing to marry your business partner? And what was it about her, uh, back then that made you so willing to, aside from the the money that she was able to, uh, get behind herself in the nineties, what was it about her that made you think she would be the right partner? Yeah. I mean, obviously I don't want to sound like Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire. Me. Um, but, but, she somewhat um, really balanced me, and I think that when you're looking for your, for business partners um, and ones that um, that I, partnerships that I've seen that have been really successful, you know, like when you know you talk about like the sweet greens guys or the tender greens guys, mm-hmm. um, or even um, the chopped salad guys, you know, um, you really want to find partners that have um, different areas of expertise, mm-hmm. specialty, passion. Um, you know, Ellen is. Uh, unbelievable at um, the business side, you know, crunching the numbers, digging into the P&Ls, um, creating um, uh, metrics, you know, for us, um, really looking at the ROI um, and kind of mapping it out where, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, I'm, I'm very much into the creative, um, you know, the culinary side. Um, I'm, I'm deep into how to replicate the hospitality, like what is the hospitality experience and then how can we um, consistently deliver that? So what kind of procedures and systems, right? So, um, you know, we, we each, you know, have, have kind of that different side of the business. Now there have been a lot, I, you know, I joke around all the time that I'd already have bankrupted this company just because um, Ellen forces me on anything that I find 
you know, passionate and I think is a game changer um, to argue the ROI, right? And really um, put some, uh, uh, some metrics around it. And it's been, it's been, it's been a very healthy relationship while at the same time, you know, she's risk adverse and I push her and I, I, I aggressively challenge the norm. And, um, and, and so for both of us, I think we've both been able to come to a, a far greater place than either one of us could have achieved individually. So, wow. yeah, I mean, just know your lane, uh, stay in your lane and surround yourself with people who are strong where you're weak and, uh, there's so much more power in having that impact in your, in your, your independent lanes. You can go so much further that way. Uh, yep. and it, it sounds like she's more of the pragmatic type attention to detail with the numbers and you're more the, uh, emotional intelligence slash creative slash like dreamer, uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's a great combination if you can find somebody, if, you, if you're one of those, find the other side because it's the, the one-two punch is so powerful. Um, so yeah, you have, she, she always says, I do all the fun shit. <laughs> awesome. So uh, SKUs eventually, do you sell that or do you, do you end it and use those locations to start a new concept? No, no, no. So uh, no, thank, thank God we actually got a little bit of money for it. Not oh, that's a lot. right. Yeah, you did sell. Uh, that was know. the seed money that we started uh, Mendo with. So there's two things. One, it made us enough money. Granted, we were living like Navy SEALs in a little <laughs> apartment in Westwood. Um, but uh, but we ended up making enough money that we actually spent almost eight, nine months researching uh, sandwiches uh, across the country um, spent an enormous amount of time thinking about the brand, thinking about what cat. Well, first we spent an enormous amount of time thinking about what category we wanted our next restaurant concept to be in. And then, and then to have that kind of money to be able to really do the due diligence and the research, um, I think paid off. And then, you know, we built the first one without money and had enough, uh, money going into store number two, um, you know, as, as, as well. So, so I'm curious, uh, um, before we really dive into the Minnesota farms and how you grew this concept, why, what was it about SKUs? Was it the plan from the beginning to create and then flip and sell or um, why did I you choose to be the next great, uh, franchise? I was, I, I, I spent so much time. I spent two years studying franchising and, 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 and you know, the pros for that matter, the cons of, of franchising a business. Right. So I, I, I'm deep in my opinions about franchising. And, um, but anyway, so we really looked at, um, you know, uh, a lot of different options, but what really it came down to is, um, is that it was just too small of a category for us to be excited about even getting anyone else excited about it. Well, each of the stores were profitable, um, only, only like a, like a couple hundred grand, you know what I mean? It was, it was tiny. Um, the ROI, you know, um, was, was over like three and a half, four years. Um, it just, it, there just wasn't a lot of money there. Um, and, and we really had to take a hard look at like the category. So if you look at it, we're in Asian, that's probably the fifth most popular food category. Right. Okay. And then in Asian, we're Japanese. So now we're a subset of that. And then in Japanese, we're not sushi. <laughs> we're, we're, we're over here. So we yeah. spent more time introducing our guests to like how to fit us in their rotation than to actually say, you know, um, you know, oh, uh, uh, do you like sandwiches? Yeah, I eat them all the time. Great. We're an upscale sandwich place. Yeah. Right? Yep. Easy. Yep. Less than an elevator pitch. It okay. was like one sentence. That makes sense. Right? 
So, um, and we, we just decided we were in too small of a category. So if we were going to stay in the restaurant business, we actually thought about leaving it, which is funny because I don't know any other business. Um, we're like, let's get in the biggest category that exists. So we had, we had looked at pizza and at the time, again, just like I thought Chipotle wasn't as good as Baja Fresh. I'm like, no one can do fast casual pizza because you just, you can't, you can't cook a, uh, the pizza dough too quick. And the Italian American in me was like, no one's eating that fast food pizza. So I totally missed that. <laughs> um, and I looked at better burger, but we knew so much about catering because we were doing actually an enormous amount of catering business from our teriyaki places that were like, how do we not get in the biggest category that exists, which is sandwiches for that matter, salads and, uh, and out of the gate be a catering powerhouse. So that's when we pivoted and, uh, totally focused on, on sandwiches. Awesome. Cool. Thank you for walking us through that. And, yeah. uh, so it was 2002 where you started having this conversation and it wasn't until 2004, 2005 where you opened your first, uh, Minnesota farm. So take us through that, I guess, roller coaster of starting with one look. Lo- you start with one location, correct? Yeah. Yeah. One location and for almost, uh, four years, <laughs> four years. So what yeah. was, what, when you were, what went wrong, right? Well, no, not what went wrong, but like what, I guess, what was your plan from the very beginning? Like, I get, you knew you wanted to open multiple locations. You wanted to potentially franchise. Uh, are you, you're not a franchise now, are you? No, 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 no. Uh, you know, and I, so, so this is our idea behind opening SKUs was to open like maybe two or three of them, not to be in front of you right now with 17 and building four as we speak. Um, th- that was never the case. And, you know, and I kind of share with you how that grew, but, but you know, it was to do three really, really great restaurants that um, that that did great sales. So um, I think what differentiated with us, and I'd recommend for you know, kind of anyone and necessarily any business, is that um, we were properly capitalized now. <laughs> this time, um, I wasn't asking for loans from my sister, um, and we had a, we had a clear business plan because uh, we really you know, understood like how many covers we need to do and what kind of occupancy costs. And we, we, we had that really dialed in and we obviously were early pioneers of fast casual. So we super understood our labor model. Um, we opened with training manuals and systems, like with most people have to like figure that out. But more importantly than all of that, we actually had some clear whys. We knew what we were going to do, which was going to be sandwiches Event, you know, with with some salads, barely any. Now it's funny how many salads we do. Did you say clear uh, whys like W H Y? Yeah, clearly W H Y. We had some clear whys, um, and I know you know like there's books now. You know Simon Sinek mm-hmm. wrote "Start with the Why," and um, well, we, we had clear whys. One uh, one of our whys was um, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and although we had a little bit of money from the sale of SKUs, um, not a lot. And we had, we had committed so much of our finances to eating better food, better ingredients. Um, at that time, uh, Whole Foods had just bought Mrs. Gucci's. So um, we were now shopping at Whole Foods. Um, and that was a huge change in our budget to commit to, um, to eating Whole Foods. Um, and we felt like this was bigger than a trend. We felt like it was a movement. So our first why, because I did grow up in farm country and know about, um, you know, big agriculture 
and know about organic farming was that we were going to support local farmers and artisans that that deserve it. Mm. So they didn't have to have organic certification, but we were going to support people that we actually built relationships with. And we were going to build our food concept around that. So that was our first why. Our second one um, had to do with, uh, we were fascinated by the advent of better coffee. At that point, Starbucks was probably tiny. You know, I'm assuming, you know, when you go back, there are probably only 500 units That's it. Uh, back then, you know, <laughs> tiny. Um, and they were calling it a third place. And that, for me, was powerful. From growing up in a little hick town that has, you know, a main street, you know, with kind of a town square, you know, and the, the, this idea that they were calling these coffee shops gathering places. And we, we asked ourselves, how can we enhance that? How can we be part of that neighborhood gathering place? Um, and then the last piece um, was something that we had discovered at SKUs, and that was um, more than our teriyaki um, to, to all of these stressed out lawyers and accountants that were in the building above us, um, we were selling happy. Mm. Um, we, were, we, were, we were taking care of them. We were expressing love. We were building relationships with them. We were making them feel right, um, cared for. And we took those three pieces, right? And, and selling happy just doesn't extend to the guest. It also extends to the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had, we had three very clear principles. And, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to you today, Eric. Uh, I'll tell you, we live them far more today than we did on day one, but we opened with those. Um, and I think it was a huge differentiator. And on day one, we were very, very busy. And I was joking that, you know, what, what, what went wrong in the four years? Nothing went wrong in the four years. Um, I think the nerdy side of us kept questioning, why are we successful at this location? Is it a lack of competition? Are we really as good as the sales are showing? Or are there some false positives? And to be frank, there was actually a number of false positives of why we were doing massive sales. I mean, we were open 20 hours a week, um, 11 to 3 p.m., doing almost 1.6 million in sales. Wow. Um, so uh, we really uh, we got the food better. Um, we tightened up our supply chain. We tightened up our training. So by the time we opened our second store, we were able to open our second and third within a six month period. And both of them um, were way bigger than even the first store. Mm. So I credit a lot of our success to those four years of kind of incubation where we really, really studied why the customer was using us, what they liked, what was um, what looked like um, success versus what actually was success. And we, we, we were very good students of our business by the time we opened the second yeah, and third store. Distilling that recipe, really figuring out what it is so you can recreate it and get to the core of what's making you successful. Sounds like what you did there. And I love this because before you started talking, I wrote down, focus on being great, not big. And it sounds like that's what you were doing. Instead of focusing on growing this thing, you said, well, how can we grow inward? How can we go deep? How can we look at every little detail and make it better every day, be better every day? It sounds like you had that same mentality back then. That, that mantra you share with us today. Um, and is that, is that kind of to like summarize, like what you're doing is just going deep and look, looking at the details and just in trying to make yeah. an impact. I, well, you know, I, I don't want to like overly simplify, but I'll tell you like in kind of like big takeaways was one, how do you scale your culture? 
Like everyone, like, yes. Know, thank you, you so much for going there. That was the next. That was the you next have thing. To find what your culture is, yep. right? And then you have to go like, what are the pieces, right? Beyond founders, right? What are the pieces? What are the, all the different systems that you're going to put in place that are going to make sure that now 800 team members behave a certain way? Um, so we went super, super deep. We continue to go super deep into how we scale our culture, right? Um, the second thing you have to ask yourself, right, is um, how do you make the food as compelling at one store as you're going to do at two, three, five, six, seventeen, eighteen? Right? How do you make the food even more compelling? Right? How do you continue? Don't jump the shark. Don't create items that don't fit. But how do you actually continue to make that level of craveability? Right? That core product. Right? So one, how do you how do you deliver? Because if you can scale your culture, you're going to deliver a consistent hospitality experience and then second how do you deliver a consistent um, food experience and those are the two things that we spend an enormous amount of time really really writing systems and we continue now i'm going to tell you at 17 restaurants we run better than we did at 10 right at at six restaurants we ran better than we did at three and at three restaurants we ran better than we did at one and that's that that that's that investment that we've made in those in those two um, those two challenges. So right? we have like twenty five minutes left before you have your hard stop. And there's two things I want to cover in this free flowing part of the conversation uh, before we move on to that speed round. That first part you said, uh, how do you scale your culture? Yeah. Uh, how so you figured like that's what you're trying to figure out. So what's the answer? How do you scale your culture? Yeah. No. Uh, so uh, so I. I I really look at it in three boxes, right? But first, like, go ahead and go to just, like, what's culture? Culture is um, a way a group of people, right, speak to one another, right? And it's it's uh, different customs or rituals, right? <laughs> um, so what are the customs and rituals that, that we are going to put in place, and then how are we going to define how we speak to each other? So the three buckets of, of what we um, what we focused on and continue to focus on, right, is first actually recruiting um, and, and I want to say assimilating because we truly believe these people already have our culture, right, but recruiting and assimilating uh, the right team, okay, Right. The easiest way to train someone is to hire the right person. Right. Yep. So, so we spent a lot in how, um, you know, how we've actually regimented how they do an interview and what they're looking for in their team, mem- in our team members. Um, we've actually taken training out of the store. So your first two days in hospitality are actually done at a central training location in which you train with other people from other stores. There's tons of role plays. Um, there's tons of opportunities that, hey, if this isn't a good fit for you, we'll high five it out and we pay them uh, right there on the spot. And then there's tons of testing. And we actually filter out almost 20% of the people that go to this two-day training. It's, it's pretty intense. And those that aren't a great fit, we get them out before they actually even get in the stores, right? Oh, wow. So that's the first big bucket is hiring the right people, and getting them assimilated, you know, in a specific way. Okay. 
The second piece, uh, I go really to the to the rituals that we have. We have all these different um, things. Like we have, uh, obviously, our, our get better every day. We ask each of our team members. Um, we have certain values, right? Um, so we have this list of values. So each week, each team member gets an opportunity to talk about how they're going to live that specific value that day in their job. Um, every day they get, they have their G bed where we're talking about how we're going to build on what we just accomplished yesterday. Right. We have the rituals of when you first guest that walks in is, uh, or when we open, sorry, is 68 men, men, uh, Mendo. When we close, it's 86 Mendo. Uh, we have the ritual of first guest, best guest, last guest, best guest. Right. Um, so, you know, we go on, we have, you know, we have, probably 15 other rituals, right, that we do, you know, as, as a team. Um, and then the third bucket, and this is the one that really actually, uh, you know, I, I've, I found most fascinating. I've spent an enormous amount of my time and effort, you know, on, in fact, you know, I'm spending, I'm actually writing a book about it right now. And this is, um, this is how, how we coach. Um, how do we coach our culture? And, um, in, you know, and I found early on, um, how our managers speak to our team members defines our culture more than any great quote on the wall, more than any great ritual, right? How we talk to each other is the, is either waters down or, or strengthens who we are as, 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 as a culture. So um, we need to give these managers real tools, right? That's not a motivational rah-rah speech. So um, I created this thing called Coaches Clinic, where for five hours, I give them real practical tools of what's the difference between a good coach and a bad coach? What's the difference between um, deliberate coaching, right, uh, versus just, quote, unquote, coaching, right? Coaching with a plan, coaching with feedback, Mm. right, Um, and how to give it, right? Uh, And then I go into situational leadership. So it's been dabbled with Ken Blanchard, covered it but I've really done this kind of simplified version of coaching by the numbers, right? And actually diagnosing the team member and what they need um, and then establishing what coaching is, is, uh, is most appropriate. So we've created this entire workshop that every time one of our team members gets promoted to another level of managerial uh, level, they actually come back to this workshop where they get these, these tools kind of sharpened, Right. So those are the three buckets that have really helped us kind of continue to live our culture every day and, and, and make it better. So those three buckets again, uh, recent or sorry, recruit and assimilation, uh, getting better every day. And then the third one was uh, the uh, coaching the culture. Did I get those correctly? Yes. Yeah, so, so the first bucket is uh, recruiting, right? Not hiring. I, I know I use the word hiring, but you really should be recruiting. Okay. Right. Uh, um, and by recruiting, I mean, you know, like it's so funny at restaurants, you know, you'll get these people to walk in, whether you think they're a great person or not, you know, like stop judging books. Right. We always hear it. Um, so many people are like, Hey, I'm looking for a job. And then all of a sudden they get like shoved over in the corner. Maybe they get handed an application. Maybe not. Someone will be with you. Right. You walk into a Mendo um, looking for a job from that moment on, our team members are like trying to get a marriage proposal from you. You know, hey, can I get you something to drink? <laughs> yeah, dude. You know, you know. Uh, if I had a second, I'd tell you more about the place. I'll be right back over. You know what I mean? I love like, that. I love that. Recruit, 
So recruiting and assimilating, right? The right team, right? The second bucket is the rituals, right? And the third bucket is how we speak to one another. Awesome. And I love that idea. I'm thank you for clarifying the whole recruiting thing. And I, I think we get this mentality that we are letting the person that's going into the job interview, sell themselves to us where really we need to be selling ourselves to them because we need the best on our team and we want to attract onto our best. And that just that pivot of, you know, saying like, we're recruiting. We want you, not you want to work for us, right? It can just be a, a big difference. Um, okay. So one more thing that I want, the other thing I wanted to cover, you said how to scale culture. And then you said how to, uh, how do you make food compelling as you scale as well? And we don't have much time, but if you can just speak to that in like one or two minutes before we go to the speed round, uh, that scaling food, I don't know. It's going to be tough. You're very uh, one, detailed one in your explanations. Answer that would take 45 minutes. But, you know, I think there needs to be a process to R&D. If I, if I could give any advice to any restaurant, um, owner, um, restaurateur, chef, restaurateur is, is, you know, I've worked with a lot of really, really great chefs. I continue to work with some just amazing chefs. Um, it's, it's the chefs that actually think that, um, that their genius has been, uh, blessed to them divinely. And they think that they can, they, that they're going to create the next great concept in their head. Um, you know, someone had asked me, um, uh, just recently, you know, um, like, you know, what's our process in, in, or who are we most inspired by in our culinary creative process? And I actually said Apple. Um, and it was because I, you know, I listened to one of the uh, project managers. He had done a, um, a podcast, uh, funny enough. And, um, and he was going through that. He goes, God, we've got some unbelievably hyper creative people that work for us. And then we have people that are just not as creative. Uh, but are but are extraordinarily studious and really um, are great at studying, you know, um, uh, demand, right? And he goes, and when I can marry the two, right, um, is when is when our best design because the studious ones create process, right? Mm-hmm. They they understand to like learn from your wins, right? And build on your wins. You don't always have to learn from your losses. There's more to learn from your wins than from your losses, right? Um, as well as their understanding where where holistically they fit in the market and what all, everyone else is doing, not to copy, but to then build on, right? They're actually understanding like where the next generation is going and stay in front, right? So when we look at food, oh my God. Like, you know, we have all these rules. We do a food tour every quarter. We walk into 15, 20 restaurants and eat through a city. Um, one of our rules is is you cannot share anything that we're better than anyone else at. Because guess what? They're in business and they're busy or we wouldn't have picked the place. So people are coming here for a reason. Look for the nuggets of gold, right? Harvest these nuggets of gold, right? They might even be pretty dirty. It might just be like how someone you know, uh, does a certain sauce. You might have, you might hate the rest of the sandwich. Don't talk about anything you hate. Just talk about where the nuggets of gold are and harvest them. And we harvest them in a, in, in a real process. It's not this, everyone has a notebook out. Everyone's taking pictures. We do this giant recap. It goes on a board that we're working off of, you know, the food that you're seeing right now, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, in R and D years out, you know, um, we made a massive investment almost four years ago into smoking our own meat. Um, you know, that was a huge investment. 
we're actually just came out with our first smoked meat product wow. um, three months ago. We're actually launching in, a, in a, gosh, three weeks, um, our pastrami, our actually own house smoked pastrami, which is not done very often. So, you know, it's a huge process, right? But it bit on the board from a, from a tour we did in Brooklyn four years ago, right? So that's, you know, so we, we have this real process that we built for R&D. The second uh, advice I would give everyone, and I got this from uh, Donald Moore, who's the uh, executive chef of Cheesecake Factory. The guy's like one of the true geniuses in the restaurant space. Um, and he goes, you know what? We spend almost 60% of our time making our already successful items taste even better um, and only 40% on, on, on new innovations, right? Or new, new ideas. And I thought that was genius. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when he gave me that advice about two years ago, we actually flipped our script and we have, we have created more money, right? We've created more craveability by investing our time and effort in making things that people already like even better. Right. And it was, it was genius advice. Right. Wow. So, Man, uh, is that <laughs> great, man. Thank you so much. This is turning out to be an awesome interview. And uh, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. To be unstoppable, most restaurant owners require extra capital from time to time. When you need funding to renovate, buy equipment, or manage cash flow, you don't have time to track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. That's where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. Apply online and you'll get a decision right away. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You never have to reapply to take out additional loans and you only pay for the funds you use. Cabbage has helped more than 100,000 businesses from every industry with over $3 billion in funding. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company twice in a row. Check out Cabbage with a K.com slash unstoppable and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash unstoppable line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. Nobody likes doing paperwork. If you have a growing group of restaurants and find yourself wishing you could snap your fingers and have all of your invoices and AP instantly disappear from your plate, then you need to call Sorcery. Sorcery is used to make owning and operating a restaurant a breeze. Instead of dreading invoices, you'll be delighted to be synced with every vendor. With your new relationships, you can work on negotiating the best price to improve your margins. And Sorcery's biggest superpower is that they watch the prices you pay across the kitchen from dry goods to proteins to produce and when citrus skyrockets you'll know to update your recipes before you end up kicking yourself at the end of the quarter to learn more head over to www.getsorcery.com or find the banner in the show notes if you mention restaurant unstoppable at checkout you'll get your first month free yep all right we're back and the first question i have for you mario what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success uh inspiring others beautiful what is your biggest weakness 
inspiring others. No, uh, uh, I think uh, not paying attention to the downside. What do you mean by that? The downside? Yeah. I mean that, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, with, with um, individuals that, think big, um, don't weigh the risks as much as they should. And I think that, uh, that one of my kinks in my armor is probably, uh, a certain level of aggressive optimism. Um, and, and that, you know, when I think about Ellen and what she's, uh, the, she's so complimented me is to keep me tethered, Right. Got you. Awesome. Uh, what's one question or thing that you look for during the, I used to say interview process, but for the sake of this conversation, the recruiting process. Uh, I mean, though, I mean, one of the questions I always ask managers is, uh, what's your coaching style? Um, and in, in that, if, if the manager says, well, you know, I, 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 I coach by example. Um, you know, I, I, totally laugh because, you know, in fact, um, I'm hiring, you know, someone to coach people, not hiring someone to play. Mm. Um, you know, so, uh, so if that's, you know, their answer, or if they say that they only have one way of coaching, um, I start to question, um, and ask them, you know, do they only have one way that they talk to their loved ones? Right. And that we have so many voices. So, and look to see how they then react to me giving them this feedback you know, are they defensive or do they seem open to coaching, right? And if they say, wow, I've never really thought about it that way or gosh, that's a good point. Now I know it's someone that I can make an investment in, right? Um, if it's someone that then starts arguing with me or wants to tell me that they know it so much more than I do, uh, then I know it's someone that, that I can't make an investment in. No matter how okay they are now, they're never going to be better. Cause I can't help them grow. Got you. What's your biggest challenge today? Um, you know, I, th- I think it's the biggest challenge that anyone has, you know, when you start to get kind of, I would call this kind of the third tier um, when you're really building your support center and you're really starting to scale. Um, how do we not water down our whys? How do we, um, if anything, heighten them? Um, I'm unbelievably challenged on how we can scale our culture, even though I think we have a great plan. Um, you know, it continues to need to be invested in. Um, how do we scale sustainability in our in our supply chain? Um, you know, Mendo is beating to a unique drum, and there isn't really someone to um, model ourselves after. So we're having to kind of cut new territory with with some of our friends. Um, so, you know, so that's, that's a, that's a huge, interesting journey that we're, that, that, that we've, that we continue to have to, uh, figure out as we enter new markets. Um, so th- those are the things that weigh heavily on me. Share one code of conduct behavior or, uh, just core value you teach your team. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think, I think the most, you know, core value, you know, that, that, we ever talk about um, is this idea of, of selling happy or coaching happy. You see in our restaurants, we have, you know, all the time it says eat happy, 
right? And in our mantra is we sell happy. Um, but we actually help define it for our team members, right? Because it can be pretty ambiguous mm-hmm. and sound very kumbaya, right? And it's not. Um, the idea is that um, I think it's unbelievably important to have food that's craveable, right? I, I, I just do. I think that's table stakes. I think if your food isn't, um, isn't, uh, isn't as good as walking by your competitor, then you shouldn't be in that business or you should change your, your concept. Okay. Right. I I hate concepts that are just doing average food. So that's table stakes. But, but when I say like, like this idea that there's a higher purpose to Mendo and that's caring for our guests and expressing a certain amount of, of love to them. um, I think it's a commodity that's, it's so badly needed, right? I think that people um, in general with the advent of technology are just absolutely craving places that they can connect with other people, right? Um, these gathering places, I think that they're looking for places that the team members um, show them uh, gratitude, care, um, that there's a real relationship. It doesn't feel transactional. Um, it feels like a place that, that um, a second home you know, you know, four people. And I think it's deeply needed. Um, and it's not a marketing tactic. It's, it's, if you, if I was going to think about what I want to spread in this world, um, it's, it's not sandwich spreads. It's love. No, oh, man, I love it. And this is great. Uh, we got five minutes and five questions left just to let you know, cause I want to respect your time. I want to make sure you make your yeah. meeting on time, but you're giving us gold, man. I cringe to slow you down because I could just let yeah. you go for hours, but, uh, I want to make sure we get through it. Uh, what's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. This is like, uh, the physical things you do, right? The, that's like not yeah. everybody does. Yeah, I mean, we have a bunch, uh, but when you're clearing a table, uh, we don't allow our team members to say, uh, um, uh, can I get this out of your way? What they're supposed to say is, um, can, uh, can I create some talking room for you? And why we do that is what we're trying to say is we're not trying to turn this table. Mm. We don't need you to leave. I want you to know this is a gathering place. And if you want to spend the rest of the day here, um, feel free. I we want it. you to. We want to encourage it. Awesome. Share one online resource. One online resource. I mean, I, to, to be frank, I think if you're in the restaurant space and you're not following every single from NRN, QSR, restaurant business, like you need to be on every single one of them. Um, because I, I mean, I mean, this is, this is gold, right? Um, I mean, I'm on every food and wine, one of the um, uh, I, I'm on them all and, and I get, you know, the daily blast eater, um, every eater in every food town I'm, I'm part of because you're seeing new concepts pop up with neat ideas, helps me curate mm-hmm. my next, you know, R and D trip. So, um, you know, I, I think if you, my biggest advice is to be a student of this business. So you want to be on, on all these resources. Beautiful. And what's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? I mean, restaurant owner or better person? <laughs> it's a boat. Uh, I mean, here, let me give you a few. Um, I think that if you're just starting out in the restaurant business, you should be reading uh, Jim Sullivan's Fundamentals. Um, I think it's just, just it's, it's so just basic, strong. I think um, the second half of Danny Meyer setting the table, where he really talks about like the things that he's done to help scale union square hospitality's culture 
um, is unbelievable. I think that everyone should be reading the Fred Factor. Um, you know, doing ordinary jobs at an extraordinary level, I think, is is paramount, and every single person should read it. Um, you know, you want to get super nerdy. I believe in conscious capitalism, so you should be reading my mentor's book, John Mackey's, you know, conscious capitalism, you know, book. Uh, I think that's that's good, man. That's a good place to start. Thank you. And, uh, what's one piece of technology, like a physical piece of technology that you're leveraging in your restaurant today that's making you a better communicator, a more efficient, more profitable that you can share with our team, our listeners. Technology. Um, you know, we, we actually, we just launched and it's, a um, you know, in essence, intranet, uh, but it's a, a white label. We call it farmhouse. Um, but it's, uh, but it's an internal communications device that, you know, all of our team members can download, um, and be able to resource from their mobile app, but it's been a great way for me to be able to, you know, write a blog for them to be able to hear what's going on and, and, and internally be, you know, it's, it's interesting. So many marketing branding teams spend so much time educating their guests and really, you know, if we're going to empower our team and really use that word, not abuse that word, um, you know, our, our team members should, should be the ones educating our guests, mm. right? And spend as much time educating and getting them excited about what we're doing than necessarily uh, our guests. They'll get our guests excited. Is there a framework you're using the internet uh, or is it like how house developed? Uh, yeah, no, um, you uh, it's, it's, it's basically a like white label. Uh, what, what is the, I didn't, I didn't do it. Obviously, you know, I'm not writing yeah. No, it's all right. Don't uh, worry about it. I'll, I'll think of it. Yeah, yeah shoot me sorry. a text message later if you think of it. It's yeah, fine. I'll text it to you. Sounds good. And this is the last question, but it's a big one. If you knew that you'd be leaving this world, say tomorrow, and all the memories of you and your work would be gone, except for three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind that you know to be true about uh, your success, uh, that would make this like the humanity just you'd leave humanity better after leaving these pieces of wisdom behind. What would they be? <laughs> wow, Eric. I'm having a blast. Okay. <laughs> not you're, one. You're not three. regretting. You're not regretting uh, coming on the show, are you? Yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> so, so I'll, I would say this because um, I don't know if it's the the three wisdoms that I pick for um, the world, but for restaurant like restaurant tours, these are the three words of advice I would give you. You know, first and foremost, be a student of the business. You know, if you're not getting all of uh, reading the books um, and really understanding, you know, um, uh, everything that's going on and really deeply kind of looking um, to even uh, reflect on your own brand, you know, um, that's that's advice one, be a student of the business. Second is seek out mentorship, um, right? So, you know, uh, most, most people that have been, come at any level of success um, have, have done it through having great mentors in this business this is very much a learned business. Um, so I would seek out mentorship. I have, I have, I've worked for great people, but I've also reached out and built a great network of, of people that have taken time out of their day because they had time. Uh, they've been mentored prior to me. So I would seek out mentorship. The third thing I would do um, is, is always um, start with your why's. I think that the what, whatever that concept is, um, 
you know, you'll, you'll come up with whatever your, your restaurant business and what the food is and what the format of ordering, but really understanding what you're valuing and, and not that it's a business like, like why I'm doing it is to make money. If, if you're just out there making money, there's so many other ways besides the restaurant business that are easier to make money, um, oh, but man. really define like why you're doing it. Man, Mario, this has been such an incredible conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of it. We are a minute past our agreed upon time. I'm so sorry. Uh, before I say goodbye, I make all my guests call somebody out. So who's one person uh, that you admire in this industry you think would make a great guest on the show like you made for us today? You want to uh, interview uh, Chris Sims, uh, the founder of Lazy Dog. Chris um, Sims. He's, uh, he's unbelievably, uh, he's young, he's younger than I am. Uh, He's running a company. I think they did almost 160, 170 million in sales last year. I mean, the guy's a rock star. Chris Sims, I'm coming after you. And if somebody wants to come join your team and get mentored by you, what's the best way to connect? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, reach out to me, uh, Mario at MendocinoFarms.com. And, 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 you know, we can set up a time and I'll, I'll talk to you. Mario, I hate to rush this, but I know you got to get going. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, uh, to share your stories with us, to share your recommendations and your mentorship with us. There is no questioning, my friend. You are unstoppable. Wow. <laughs> that was such an awesome episode. Uh, he just dropped so much value on us. And I don't even know where you begin to take one lesson out of that conversation. There was literally so much value. Uh, I think he summarized it well, actually uh, with those three pieces of wisdom that he left us with just before we wrapped up. And again, that's just be a student of the business. Uh, And that's what he did. He surrounded himself with the people uh, in his community that he could learn from. But even beyond that, further than that, he got the books back in 92 before the, the, the Google and before the podcasts of the world were there. He surrounded himself with the knowledge of other people that were in those books. Uh, and you always need to be learning, always need to be growing and seek out mentors is another huge thing too. You'd be surprised the people who are really successful in this industry. Uh, one of the common characteristics I've found is that they're so willing to share their knowledge and that's why they're successful because they attract onto themselves great people, put them in their appropriate lanes and they're just so good at like bringing people onto themselves in making them better. So you'd be surprised what they're willing to share with you. And then he also said, start with your whys, get that clarity on what drives you, what, what makes you do what you do and what inspires other people to do things with you. Uh, it, it can be so powerful. Uh, and I mean, there's just so much, um, never stop learning. I think isn't one more thing too, which we kind of mentions the, the, student of the business, just always growing, always showing up to be a little bit better than you were the day before. Such great stuff in today's conversation. All right, guys, you know the drill. Like always, please do shoot me an email, eric at restaurantstoppable.com, Facebook slash restaurantstoppable, Instagram, eric, Twitter, or sorry, Instagram and Twitter, eric Cacciatore, and um, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. I've gotten some really good ones, guys, and you have no idea uh, what that positive feedback does for me. It really helps me just continue to show up, and I'm so grateful for that feedback and those reviews. And I do accept donations, restaurantstoppable.com slash support. Every little bit helps, but the best, the best way to support what I'm doing here at Restaurant Unstoppable is simply by sharing it, sharing this podcast with anybody and everyone you know 
who's aspiring to be great in this industry. Uh, like we mentioned before, you you surround yourself with those people. You're the average of those you surround yourself with. And this podcast is just one incredible way to really allow yourself to be influenced with truly amazing people in our industry. So please share this resource. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>